dusty ins, just cause the outs, and let's talk about, let's talk about, let's talk about. Welcome to Let's Talk About the Arts, presented by myself, Fergal Curtis. Each week I am joined by an artist who shares three prompts with me that they feel represent themselves as an artist. And this week I am joined by, honestly, I was thinking about this on the way in, Michael, and you are one of the most talented people I know, like, in my whole life. And I don't mean that just in, like, craftsmanship and your skills as a composer, as a musician. I mean, like, just as in a human being, like, bringing people together, how you talk to people, how you create. So you have been on my list to interview since day dot, which I think you know. (laughs) So finally, I've got you here and we're sitting in the Hilton Hotel because Michael's now a VIP. But no, we're here because you're up in Dublin for a particular event and I'd love you to chat a little bit about that event last night, why we were at that event, I was there as well, and how you're feeling this morning. Well, I mean, a little bit teary after that introduction. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're uh, welcome. <laughs> that means an awful lot. Thanks, Frank. Um Yeah, we're up for the Irish Times Irish Theatre Awards um, elsewhere, wh- which you were a, a valued part of. Yes. Um, was nominated for Best Opera. And Katie Davenport was nominated for Best Costume Design, which you won. Yes. Um, we were just chatting very fondly about her. So, um, yeah, lovely sort of lovely to be up in Dublin to get a chance to reassemble and celebrate the production because I suppose um, because the show went on you know in the middle of the big sea which we're not going to talk about of course Um, Michael got a warning beforehand do not uh, talk about COVID (laughs) I um you know, it's it's nice just to be able to celebrate, you know, with the pressure off, because I suppose, you know, only in retrospect would you really take into account how many other factors were there to be considered, as well as putting on the show, mm-hmm. um, you know, in November. So, yeah, it's been really lovely. Uh, we didn't win, um, unfortunately, which is, you know, obviously a little bit disappointing, but also, mm-hmm. you know, not the end of the world at all. Um, but uh, yeah. really delighted to have the work recognised and... I suppose, you know, there's, uh, you say about gathering people together, I think that, you know, there was a real spirit of collective, like collective creativity and collective action and, you know, um, genuine collaboration, I think, on a deep human level. Um, And it's lovely, it was lovely to see that on stage and to see it sort of work and it's lovely to see it recognised by other people as well. Yeah, and that is one of your prompts, which I'm going to start off with. Uh, it is elsewhere, this opera that you've written. And it's really interesting for me to be like, oh, okay, I'm very connected to this work and I'm very aware of it. And I was like a part of it from a certain point. Um, so sitting down today, I was like, I have so many questions and so many perspectives of my own being part of it and had my own journey through it. Mm. So I'm really interested to sit down and go, why did you choose this particular work? Because I know you've done a lot as the kind of one that at this current moment in time represents you as an artist and I don't even know where to start with it because it's it's a massive project I'm like do we go right back to the beginning but then we'll be here for hours so I suppose why did you choose this I mean like I in a way I feel like the story chose me it was you know with a big project like this sometimes there are so many different tributaries towards you know the the main thing and you're not always aware of what they are when they begin so I suppose from a thematic point of view I came across the story of the Monaghan Asylum Soviet probably in 2016 I was doing research for a piece that was about the movement of populations or of population demographics around the time of the of the 1916 rising and I was doing a lot of research into the history of the border or the area that was to become the border, you know, which is obviously where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And I came across this story of the Monaghan Asylum Soviet, which was, you know, as we know, you know, the that the staff who were on strike in the Monaghan Asylum barricaded the gates and, you know, created this independent commune and they integrated the patients into the function of it. And that really fascinated me, I think, you know, from one point of view because of, 
my own politics and I suppose the fact that I was very interested in exploring marginalized voices you know not only in terms of mental health but also in terms of you know the types of political ideologies that were very prevalent at the beginning of the Irish Free State and that then sort of over time got written out of history you know I suppose because more conservative powers kind of came into Mm -hmm. you know came into the centre um so there was that and then I suppose you know being honest as well at the time I was going through a period of you know low mental health myself um and I think that there was something that resonated with me in the story that made me feel maybe that there was an aspect of my own being that I wanted to break into and that I couldn't quite kind of get at um and I felt that if I could break something in the story that I could I could really find a way maybe of connecting heart and mind in a way that I was struggling with um and I think it was only when I discovered the character of Celine that the idea of doing the project really came into its own I think prior to that I thought that the story was interesting but I would feel artistically that just to render an historical event on stage isn't really isn't really what drives me. Yeah. Um, whereas there was something in the idea of having a character who's basically living through this event in memory and who's using it as a means of access and her own freedom. I think that there was something in that that, that felt really compelling. Um, and so I started trying to investigate that and you know, the paths of research were so varied then, you know, between spending time in, you know, in as a sort of artisan residence in a psychiatric hospital in Switzerland yeah. and following the path of St. Dimpna or St. Davenet, who was um, a Monaghan woman who is the patron saint of mental illness, who, you know, has a whole story that ends up in Giel in Belgium. And there's a whole sort of mental health practice, you know, um, that's based on basically the fact that so many people go on pilgrimages and have done for hundreds of years yeah. to, th- to her relics. Um, so lots of varied things like that. And, and I think connected to all of that then, I suppose, and probably also connected to mental health, I had an idea about how I wanted to make work that was different to the model that I'd been working in prior to that. Um, and I suppose that's from one point of view that as a composer, I felt a little bit constricted in terms of how wide ranging the creative vision could be. Um, I think that I really wanted to expand music or musical practice into a multidisciplinary practice. Um, but also I think from a, from a human perspective to find a way of collaborating with people that was non-hierarchical and to mm-hmm. sort of break down, you know, and especially actually with performers, you know, um, that as opposed to people coming in and feeling that they're just trying to manifest your vision and that, you know, and that you're that basically as the lead artist in quotation marks, you're the only person who has access to that vision that you create a dynamic within the group whereby the ideas that are behind the piece itself start to just come to life between yeah. people. And, uh, and I really had a sense that that would lead to a different quality of work. And I really wanted to try it out. And I felt that this would be the perfect project to try it out with um, because the story itself is about collective action and and I suppose about, you know, an idea of human beings becoming more than themselves through working with one another. Yeah. Um, I want to touch on why opera. So, like, I kind of, like, the first time I saw you perform was at Another Love Stories. I don't even know what year it was in. And I kind of knew your social media presence um, as a different kind of artist and a different kind of composer. Um, And then when you're doing an opera, it was like, oh, okay. Um, But why did you decide this is the field I want to go down with? And it's interesting that you say you wanted to like bridge a gap between hierarchy. Whereas if we're being honest, like in opera, there is a lot of hierarchy. That's just the way it works. So was it a conscious decision to be like, I'm going to go with this art form and break that down? Or did something else bring you to opera? Um, I think opera was always a little bit at the back of my mind when I was okay. making other work. Um, a little bit sort of like, you know, I know that's there and I'm not sure if I want to go there. But 
parts of it make sense and parts of it completely don't. Yeah. You know, so I, you know, simultaneous with, you know, performing and writing songs and, you know, and then composing work for ensembles, as in for instrumental ensembles, I would have been doing quite a lot of work um, in th- contemporary dance, like collaborating yeah. with choreographers on c- contemporary dance pieces. And and in a few of those, I incorporated singers and really loved what I could do with the voice, you know, r- really found that there were ways of making an audience feel things that they would wouldn't expect through unexpected use of the voice. And so to a certain extent, I felt that, you know, at some stage, maybe opera would be the art form that I'd end up in. You know, as a as a means of a composer sort of bringing together all of these other art forms into a coherent vision, but I found the art form itself, and I suppose the politics of the art form itself, deeply uninteresting. Um, okay. And and so I always sort of pushed against it, um, and would have felt like you know I'm not sure if like it's for that that's for me, and I suppose in part that's because I do feel that the the roots of the art form are so linked to I suppose to imperial 19th century Europe and to there's a a lot of the institutions are still sort of mainly frequented by you know a wealthier audience because the ticket prices are so expensive and mm-hmm. um and in terms of conversations that I would have with artists from any discipline you know I would have found that a lot of the time when I got into conversations with people about commissioning me to write an opera they wouldn't be the they wouldn't be as interesting as the conversations that I'd have had with a choreographer or with people in theatre. It just felt a little bit apart. Um, and then I think what began to happen was that the themes that I started wanting to explore became so much closer to my own world and where I was from. And then I started finding a different route into opera, you know, that naturally coalesced with... I suppose the storytelling traditions and the even the vocal traditions, you know, that I would have grown up with, um, mm-hmm. be that you know and anything from sort of Shannos to singing in fashes to, you know, and then to more experimental stuff, um, and and then you know, from a totally practical point of view, then you know, for me to go and find funding to bring that vision into alignment, opera is the place that you go to because of the way that the arts council is structured. Yeah. You know, so I suppose in other countries they they have music theatre as an art form, but in Ireland it's opera. Yeah. Um. And so I suppose you know that kind of pushed me towards that. And and then you know, once you start working with opera singers and you realise that the how finely honed the instrument is, like that it's really like working with Olympic athletes in a way mm-hmm. that you know it's it's a it is a really particular thing to work with somebody who has that level of skill and command over an instrument um and so that i suppose once i started working closely with singers and finding you know all of the nuances in that then it became something that i just fell in love with yeah. you know and, and now i'd feel like it's a very opera is it i mean I, i'm totally at home with the idea of saying that you know i compose opera but what opera is is something that I fight for all the time, you know, like I, I think okay. that it, I think that, you know, what what the word means to me is something that's much more about that multidisciplinarity and, you know, artists from different disciplines coming together to create something that's unified and powerful and what has very little for me in connection with, you know, Donizetti or Verdi, or, mm-hmm. you know, not, not, not from and in terms of their personal artistic impulse, but just in terms of you know the idea of that tradition I, I i don't feel very connected with that at all okay i'm really interested in um risk taking when you were doing this because you kind of said to me when you sent me this prompt you were like i'm not compromising on the way i'm going to go about this and i think that's quite difficult to do um do you feel that there were risks you took during this process that were like, I'm trusting my instinct here and I'm going for it, even though I can see that it might be the wrong decision based on past, you know, other companies or other people who've composed opera. And you're like, I'm doing it my way. 
oh, it mightn't work, but my gut's telling me to go. Was there any of that involved? A huge amount. Uh, well, I think the main thing was in setting up Straymaker. Um, yeah. Because it's not a... Which is your production is company. my production yeah. company, you know, and it isn't really the normal model for a composer. I mean, there are other composers that have production companies, but for the most part, the a composer is commissioned to create something and to create, you know, to write an opera, for example, you know, by an opera company or by an opera house and might have some involvement in the makeup of the creative team yeah. but ultimately isn't the person that makes the decision on it um, and that to me felt it, it, it felt very risky um, mm-hmm. and, and I suppose to go back to the you know the original impulse for elsewhere and from the mental health point of view I think I felt a very profound need to feel spiritually connected to my work again okay. and I, I felt that I had lost that at the time um, and it's a funny thing. It's it, like it really is a gut feeling, but there are times when people suggest work projects to me, and I immediately will get almost a tightness in my chest, like a palpitation. Get that hell no moment. Yeah, <laughs> and there and 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 it's funny because I would say that for elsewhere I had an infinite amount of energy for it. Like I never felt fatigued. Like the mm-hmm. task was enormous, and I feel the same about upcoming projects that are equally enormous but then a smaller thing could come on the agenda where it doesn't totally align with that sort of I suppose that impulse that core artistic impulse and and I'll find that I'll break out in a sweat over it and I'll have a sense of being very tired and not have enough time to do the work and and I suppose I've learned to trust that a little bit and so I would I think that with elsewhere there was there were points where we were in conversation about you know it being sort of made by other companies and that I would it would be in a more traditional model of me composing mm-hmm. the music and and it just felt that I wasn't going to be able to get at the thing that I wanted to get at through that um and so the risk really was to say this is a huge production but we're going to try to do it ourselves um and that's i have to say the risk that a lot of then other people took on it as well you know was to take a relatively unknown quantity and and to have faith in it you know so we were lucky we kind of had some local support in monaghan and then we got arts council funding to do a development mm-hmm. um as you know in where we in 2019 we had two weeks of workshops on the show and we decided that we got to go to paris it was wonderful and to monaghan and to monaghan um but i would have had a real sense with the concert that we did at the end of that two weeks that the stakes were really high because the company had never made anything before and we were going to be going back and asking for you know a a large amount of funding in order to make this large-scale production um and in order to do that, you would really need fe- for, need for people to feel like it was undeniable, you know, yeah. that the that the quality of the work was undeniable, and so and 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 I think we were also very lucky that you know that ha- we managed to make that happen before COVID because I think without that, it would be entirely aspirational. Okay. Whereas I think that sort of was a sea change moment. I think that the you know the people that came to see that then got a sense of the production company having a capability that was beyond you know the age of it and that's also because the people that even though the company is new the people who are working with me in the company are extremely experienced and have done a huge amount of shows and a lot of them are people that i've worked with over the years on other things so there's also a very strong collaborative language and connection there Mm um but yeah that that definitely felt like a risk at the time. And obviously, you know, the the hardest thing is, to, you know, which has happened to me in the past is to see ideas sort of float down the Swanee and, you know, not get the opportunity. And, you know, eventually they sort of lose their, yeah. you know, they, they, they lose that window of possibility. Um, but I did feel with Elsewhere that there was something very powerful in the idea. And anytime I talked about the idea to anybody, they would sort of they'd they'd come alight with it a, a little bit yeah um so on some level i always believed that it would that if i just followed my instincts that it, it would be the right thing so i'd love to know 
where your follow through comes from. Because like, let's say I'll speak from my own personal experience. I have good instincts. I, you know, have an ambitious side to myself. I know kind of paths I want to go down. But I don't always have the follow through. So I look to people like you who've created something that's absolutely like massive and amazing. I'm like, there has to have been a lot of jumping off the cliff. A lot of, well, let's go through this kind of area. And I'd love to know where that comes from. Because like it's clear it's there from what you've created. Is it, you know, the way you were brought up? Is it something you learned throughout the years? Is it something you've learned from doing so many projects? Um, Because it's very clear even like, just speaking to you that you're like, as we said earlier, you're not going to compromise and you're going to follow through. That's, to me, I'm like, oh, that's that's Mount Everest. Mm. Is that Mount Everest to you or is that just something embedded in you? Um, I mean, it, it's there are times when it feels like Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. I think I do have, I, I, I def- definitely have a graft in me. Um, it's interesting. I've never asked myself where that comes from. Um, I think in a way, possibly the fact of having to entirely imagine and create the career that I'm in. What what I mean by that is that I suppose growing up, I was steeped in music, but the idea of writing music for a living wasn't even part of my vocabulary until I was about 16, 17, when I came across composers who were alive, still alive for the first time. You know, and then, you know, playing with Anagog through my 20s, there was an awful lot of you know, having to do it yourself and having mm-hmm. to, you know, really work hard just to make things happen on the most basic level. So I, I think that there's that. And, you know, in, in a way, I'd be thankful. I, I, I do remember when I was in my early 20s, there being people like, say, I studied in Maynooth, yeah. I did my undergrad in Maynooth. And I remember coming across people who had studied in Trinity who seemed like they were 10 years advanced in terms of their self-confidence and their capacity to make things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only maybe sort of, I would say it was only years after that that I'd have realized that there was a socioeconomic aspect to that as well, you know, in terms of I got out of college and, you know, I had no money and so I had to, you know, do work piano teaching and, you know, get wherever I could find work. And, and I suppose there you know, the more that you're around the music world, the more you find that there are people whose background allows them to have the freedom to sort of, Absolutely. you know, imagine in their early 20s. Um, and so I would have felt that that was an impediment at the time. Okay. Or I would have felt inferior at the time, probably a little bit. But then that, I suppose, having to have 10 years of graft of trying to make stuff happen and carve away at things and really sort of try to entirely carve out a life for yourself I think that that does give a different type of energy um, and I think eventually becomes something that's a real strength and, and really beneficial mm-hmm. you know and even I suppose in terms of my relationship with with home as in with my family and being a musician you know the, the, I like I have a really supportive lo- you know family who yeah. you know very well um, but again, and are also incredible musicians, brilliant musicians, yeah. yeah. And and but this, but in spite of that, I think that you know, again, the idea of being a composer for my parents would have been something that they, you know, didn't understand for a long time. Yeah. And and so I think again, I would have had a sense of I need to work really, really hard at this in order to make it something that isn't a worry on other people. And and I suppose to prove that it's possible to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think I really had that in me you know, from from when I went to college and I was constantly arguing with my mother about, you know, the the sort of I suppose that binary between get a real job or, you know, be an artist. Yeah. Um and and I think that the sort of the heat of that, you know, really pushed me into feeling like, okay, I need to make things work, but really make need to make them work. And yeah. I, I and I definitely put pressure on myself in terms of the responsibility if you can make this type of work to do it you know because i suppose the you know there is something a bit magic in the fact of being able to imagine things and then make them happen and especially you know there's something magic in in seeing how that can have an impact on other people's lives and so i suppose i would have a real sense of if i have that gift then i need to use it and i need to 
use it to its fullest extent. Yeah. So I think that that's where the follow through comes from. It's it's there's a, a sense of both the responsibility to make the work because the work needs to live, mm-hmm. and then there's also the sense of you know needing to sort of, I suppose you know to work with the opportunity in case the opportunity goes away, you know, or like, you know, to really sort of to consider the opportunity to make the work a really precious thing, you know. Yeah. Um so I think that might be that might be part of it. Yeah. You know. And and I suppose then the thing is well when when the work happens it's so worthwhile. Like there's no feeling quite like it. Yeah. Um and yeah, and I and I never I, I would say that I'm probably, you know, this might be an an indictment in a way of you know the life balance thing but i would always feel that when i'm kind of in the middle of a work project that's when meaning kind of you know is most easily accessible you know where there whereas you know i'm I'm never great at kind of entirely taking time off because there's always that feeling of wanting to get back into yeah absolutely thing um let's move on to your second prompt you we've kind of like sprinkled it throughout there um, and that's um, your roots in Monaghan. Um, you know my grandparents are from Monaghan. I do. I have told you that. Yeah. yeah. I'll just keep bringing it up over the years. I'm very much a Dublin man. Um, I know. Like yeah, all sound people are. You know, <laughs> okay. Now I'm a Monaghan man, yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is like those first two weeks we touched on it um, earlier in 2019 when we spent them in Monaghan were amazing. And I think, as you said, we were all so excited to go to Paris and this is going to be great. And then we we're going up to Monaghan for two weeks. And it was actually for me, it was very special because my grand had just passed away and I was going back to Monaghan and I got to meet up with his brothers when I was up there. Mm. So it was really nice. But there was a bit of a like, oh, here we go to Monaghan. And it was incredible. It was like the most incredible two weeks. And we also did our rehearsals last year for them. And it's a really special place now. I think for everyone who spent time up there in this project. But let's talk about your roots there because you included them your family upbringing the musicality you were brought up with we went to your house back in 2019 everyone sang i still don't think i'm over your sister singing caledonia Mm. um my best friend maria will hate me saying that because she's my favorite caledonia but there's a rival for you now (laughs) um but yeah let's just get into that like where do you want to start with that well i suppose i mean it it's a the ironic thing for me is that when I was growing up in Monaghan, I had a real sense of, you know, someday I'm going to be a successful artist and and I'm going to get out of here yeah. and go to all these far flung places. And now I find that there's a really deep connection to home that 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 is what has opened up my work, you know, both. So from, interesting. Yeah, both both from a sort of personal creative point of view that I feel that it, it's it's what gave me the doorway into working in diff- in working in opera in a way that say felt very mm-hmm. you know very natural to me and very authentic, and and then I think also from the point of view that there's a that, you know that there's something really beautiful in bringing other people into that and. Yeah. and a sort of a, a rootedness that I think, you know, both with the artists, you know, and the team, you know, really brought something new out of them. And and then also, I think, with with audiences, you know, that there's it's it's a very interesting thing to find that you can you can be at your most contemporary through being rooted to something that is, you know, that feels quite ancient or sort of, you know, yeah. certainly that's that's older than yourself. Um, so yeah, like I, I grew up in Castle Blaney. I'm the youngest in a family of six, yeah. and you know my my mum is a very very good musician. She would have written shows for kids when I was growing up, and I suppose my first experiences of show business would have been performing in those. Yeah. Um, and my siblings, my older siblings, you know, very good musicians, and you know there would have been a lot of music around the family. So when I was a child, there's a, a gap between me and the rest of them. So they would have been sort of teenagers when I was a toddler. Okay. And um, and so there was just lots of music around the house. And obviously that had a huge impact on me, you know, mainly from that thing of just wanting to be part of it all, you know, and the people that were the coolest people in the world to me were interested in music. So yeah. I wanted to be interested in music. Um, and we sort of had a mixed background of, um, you know, 
learning the classical piano with a nun called Sister Ursula, who was, you know, uh, also had taught my mother the piano. And oh, wow. It was a little bit like a surrogate grandmother in okay. my house. Um, and then traditional Irish music. And that was, you know, my my siblings, Mags and Martin, were in a trad group called Arcana. And I suppose they would have discovered, like, you know, the Irish language would have been big in our house, you know, so we would have discovered Shando songs and... Mm-hmm. I played the trad fiddle myself, you know, um, along with the piano when I was a child. Um, and so there's just, there was just a melting pot of all of that. And then going to secondary school and obviously everybody was into heavy metal. So there was lots of heavy metal and they took up the guitar. And um, I think that I had a at the time there would have been a, a sense of, you know, the place having a rich musicality. You know, even when I was there. Uh, but when I look back on it now, I'd also see that there was something so interesting about being at the fringes of lots of different types of music and, and those things kind of melding together in a way that when you move into the more sort of established music world, you know, it's less the case now, I think. But like certainly when I was studying, there was a real sense of categorization of, you know, there are traditional musicians, yeah. there are classical musicians, and there are people who play in bands. And I think I always would have had to rile against that a little bit in okay. order to maintain who you know all of the aspects of music that I find interesting um I think that yeah now for me Monaghan and and I suppose the border like where where I grew yes. up in Castleblaney is you know only a, a few kilometers from the border um I would have a huge sense of there being something really powerful in the identities that take place in places that are at the margins and and there's something interesting about the border that it be that it's the center as opposed to being the thing that divides the centers apart. You know, like the border mm-hmm. itself has a sort of an energy that emanates from it. Um, and so in recent years, I've I've become very interested in delving back into that world. And I suppose a lot of what I would have heard as a child, you know, from sort of, you know, novenas that like I would have been at down in the in the chapel, you know, in the those sort of murmurs of prayer and then you know learning more and more about the Shan Nose tradition of the area and you know which mm-hmm. is like you know um Padre and Yulakon has done amazing work on kind of gathering oriel songs you know a lot of a lot of which are very well known songs but you know giving a sense again of the area having its own very strong Gaelic identity and then everything you know that probably you know went along with the troubles like you know the the sound of helicopters being there all the time and you know that the area was very militarized it's just there's an awful lot to delve into in memory and and i find now when i go there that i have a real sense of being close to some sort of pulsating orb of kind of energy you know that 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 i can really draw from and so when we got the funding to develop elsewhere the logical thing would have been to have workshops in Dublin and I suppose to divide them up, you know, into periods of, yeah. you know, two or three days and then to go away and work in the score and come back. And I had this idea that I wanted to bring everybody up to Monaghan, you know, and that would be the cast of singers and Miraz de Tondu, a French ensemble, you know, who were coming to Ireland for the first time. Yeah. Um, Because I felt that if I could give people a sense of that route that they would have a greater sense of the story, the particular story in Elsewhere, which is based in Monaghan, but also that I would kind of get to reinvent the wheel, you know, because it would be like people arriving to, you know, Gaeltacht Summer yes. College for the first for the first day and not having any clue what the itinerary was going to be or what the next two weeks, and that I could arrive and really get them to leave all of their baggage at the door in terms of the their frustrations or their egos or you know everything about the world that they felt that they worked in and to just be like we're a group of people and we're going to make this work together um and because you're not in your space like let's say dublin um and rehearsing there you go into the rehearsal room you get into the work you leave and then you go and do a b c you see this one whereas when you're up there you go in you do your work you kind of start getting into a different routine you it's also the time you have by yourself to reflect on what you're doing and then you'll have a coffee with so-and-so and you kind of become like a little family up there because the stresses of life are taken out. Absolutely. You know, you might like jump on a Zoom call as we can now and do bits like that. But like you do actually get to sit back and reflect as well and that allows you to 
do your own kind of little journey in a project and then get further into the project and find bits of yourself in it and you know a lot of us knew each other as well but we didn't know the ensemble mm. and then you get to create a it's it is it is really incredible to just go we're going up here and you kind of cut out the rest of the world yeah in some you know not completely but yeah it does give that opportunity and then I, th- I suppose there's something very specific for me as well because i'm going back to a place where people knew me when i was five exactly and and where i don't get to feel more important than I am either you know that there's a there's something very rooted in you know going into an art center that you know I was involved in the funding Mm -hmm. of you know but where people are just going to ask me how my parents are you know rather than there being a sense of I'm a composer and I've written an opera and we're putting it on you know and what I love about working in Aintas is that which is the art center in Castle Blaney you know um you know, first of all, that there's so much buy-in and support for me and for the work, you know, that, again, initially was more based on probably a sense of community than it was on Michael as a composer yeah. making important work, you know. um, and, But, you know, there's a daycare centre there, you know, there's an, uh, an age action group, you know, for elderly people. Um, there are students coming in and out for their lunch and 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 i think bringing an ensemble of professional artists and putting them into that setting and i suppose making everybody feel that the work that they're doing is important but in the way that everybody's work is important in in the center that it's a sort of it's a it's a part of a well-functioning society you know to be doing the type of work that we're doing i think there's something very grounding in it um, and then, you know, the the idea that everybody would eat together twice a day, that's kind of quite fundamental to it. I think I found before when I've been on tour and, you know, even on productions that would be very well resourced, if there isn't a focus on that people coming together and eating together and and I suppose that being a nourishing part of the day, yeah, it can become the thing that sort of turns you off a project quite quickly. You know that if the if you can't get good food and you know, uh, and we were given very good food, yeah, <laughs> you know, and you know, so a, a a lot of thought went into that. You know, and I suppose that the sense as well that you know rather than people if they've had a difficult morning, you know that that rather than going away and kind of going onto youtube or something and kind yeah. of you know and i suppose distracting themselves from it that you actually have the possibility within the group of going out and being cared for and feeling cared for mm-hmm. um and i think you know then the energy from the rehearsal room continuing the whole way through the day rather than being broken and uh that's something that i think you know really really works yeah. and i think creates a different atmosphere in the ensemble and the um like the community it does have this community feel and like everyone in the town is very much involved like you'd walk into the pharmacy and they'd be like oh, are you the one from the opera and like everyone's buzzing about it mm. i'd love you to tell the story about it was after um we did the workshop in 2019 and we'd done the show and you came into the pub and the barman do you remember this story? Oh, I'm not Calling sure. Calling you out as the superstar. Oh, yeah, that was, uh, yeah. I think it, it wasn't the night of the performance. It was okay. the following night um, when I came back into, I went into the pub, the local pub, and uh, I suppose we had had the success of the performance in Monaghan and also having so many invitees from yeah. festivals and venues and, you know, there being that real sense of basking in the in the success of it, and uh, I walked into a pub called the Horseman in Castle Blaney, and yeah. the barman, sort of the uh, there was a little, like little hush in the room when I came in, and then the barman said, "Well, there he is, the superstar." I love it, and and uh, you know to and and a, a, an uproarious laugh afterwards, and there was a guy that I was at school with, um. And uh, yeah, <laughs> just uh, I suppose that thing of being like drawn back down to earth and, you yeah. know, which is again really important and you know, really lovely. It was actually also lovely that that whole crew of people that I was at school with came up to see the opera. Um, and I think the atmosphere of it was a little bit like Monaghan playing in the All-Ireland final. Like, there's, there was something lovely about the Monaghan connection being something that people felt a sense of ownership over. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a really good acid test for the work, actually, to make it f- initially for an audience that haven't seen an awful lot of contemporary opera Definitely. and to 
you know, to see whether it works just, you know, the, the, the work needs to communicate itself as itself rather than based on certain criteria that refer to things that people have seen before. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, it's a, it, it, I never would have thought that this would be the case, but, you know, in I think that it'll be a working model, you know, into the future. Yeah. You know, to because then they all, a lot of them, travel down to Dublin then to see it in the Abbey, exactly, and there was that yeah. crossover as well, which was really nice. Yeah, I think it's a really, for me, it's a really beautiful thing, you know, and and it feels like uh like different worlds coming together, and uh, and it does definitely give me a sense of the work being rooted in a way that's it it's unexpected, but it it gives an awful lot of energy to me. I like I. And I feel very comfortable with the idea now of how future projects will get made, you know, that will develop it in Monaghan. It's yeah. also very, you know, that, I mean, it's it's a financial thing as well, you know, being able to go and, I suppose, work with a local hotel and with a local venue who have a lot of buy-in, you know, just from the point of view that they know my parents and know mm-hmm. me and know the family. And, um, you know i it would be very difficult to have that level of quality for the team and do it and do it in a city you know yeah. so there's a real logic to go into a smaller place and being able to sort of bring people together in the way that you'd like yeah that's amazing what is your kind of family's reaction to it all now that it's gone from like michael as the toddler to michael the dreamer and the maybe maybe get a real job to now being like oh he's done it like what's their reaction how do they feel about the whole thing it's it's lovely I, like i mean I, I i think they're proud you know and yeah. uh and it, it's the loveliest thing it really means the world you know and, and i suppose there always would have been a huge amount of support for me you know of both course. from my siblings and from my parents i think what's changed is that I suppose having seen the work, you know, like for years I wouldn't have had the opportunity to make the work, so it's completely aspirational. So I'd be saying, kind of like, I, I think I can do this thing, you know, and and that belief in you of almost when you have those ideas, you believe you're doing it, yeah. And people are looking at you going, but you're not doing anything yet. Definitely, I think I think the thing that creates anxiety in people is when you're trying to over explain you know like i i remember reading rilke's letters to a young poet where there's one of the things he talks about is that you know that you understand that you the love of your family for you is evergreen but that you can't bring them along all of the steps of the path with you you know Mm. and that if you try to do that all it does is create anxiety and i do think that there were years where i was going home and trying to inflate how sort of together I was yeah. and how successful I was and and of course you know people can see through that instantaneously and I of think course. that's the thing actually that you know probably makes people uncomfortable is when it sounds a bit like a pipe dream yeah whereas I suppose you know I've been lucky in you know the last number of years that I've had the opportunity to make work and to have it happen and to just share that with them in a much gentler way mm. um and I think it's lovely then for them to be a part of that. And I suppose, you know, it's a lovely thing, say, to put a show on at the Abbey because that's something that's recognisable to anybody in the country, you know, because it's the National Theatre and it means something. Um, so I think things like that have allowed me to open the door to my parents in particular and to, mm-hmm. and to share the work with them and, you know, to make them feel excited about it in a way that's not sort of it's not a hysterical excitement it's just a sort of yeah it's it's, you know beautiful to have a vocation and to have the opportunity to to bring it into action and the older you get the more you understand that the maybe you should like mine was always like maybe you should go and do your hd and the older you get you're more like you're like oh that's actually completely coming from a place of love whereas during the time you're like why are you attacking what i'm doing absolutely you know and your perspective completely changes and i i think it's you know it's totally understandable when you think about Mm -hmm. the world that they came from i mean like you know my my parents were born in the 40s and like you know my dad came from a you know catholic farming background with a very big family and a very small farm in tyrone and uh the you know, they, they had very little and my dad was the only person in the family who got to have a got to have a third level education. Yeah. And 
so I'm sure that for him, the preciousness of an education leading towards stability, you know, that's the sort of the core of it. He got an opportunity and to, to study and then he got a steady job, you know, and, yeah. and established a life. And I would have been academically very strong at school, you okay. know, kind of got good results at school and at college. And I think it baffled them why when I had you know so much at my disposable at my disposal through that I would choose to do something that's so difficult and Mm -hmm. and that doesn't have that stability in it um and so I think it's that you know the uh, understanding that they come from a different world and you know Ireland changed a huge amount during their lifetime I think that generation really we kind of we take for granted a little bit that they that over the course of their lifetime they have evolved through you know certainly two different completely different worlds yeah, I totally you know even, agree. even three you know and i suppose we you know there's always a sense of having to rile against that generation because you know of what because we, we were born into a time of a lot of revelation and you know a lot of the institutions like the church and you know and aspects of the state you know coming into light but and and i think that sometimes we forget that like Ireland in the middle of the 20th century was, you know, not a developed country at yeah. all. Um, so it's just a very different perspective. Yeah. And I understand that more now. And I think that the thing that really connect, like my parents are both very spiritual people. I think that once, once I was able to sort of, I suppose once I myself personally was able to connect with the, with the almost, you know, like the vocational aspect of being an artist, the the sense of the importance of the work as something that's good to do and that contributes a good to society, then I think they were able to connect with that as well. And I think that's really where we kind of align with it, much more so than any sort of material success. I think it's it's that. It's the sense of the vitality of the work and why it's important to do it. And I think it's so important to say that, like, they have changed, have to, they had to change so much, yeah. you know, in their lifetime. And our generation and younger generations definitely challenged them on being like, you have to change now. But actually, a lot of the stuff that we're challenging them on now, some of it, like religion, was their anchors oh, totally, to yeah. getting through the change that was happening. And now we're challenging their anchors. And I think there does, as much as I think, you know, that the challenge needs to be there because things need to change. We also have to be aware that we're actually, we're asking them to change something a lot deeper that in some cases may have helped them survive. Sure. And and I think as well, you know, that there has to be a caveat for us that you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because there's an awful lot of quality and an awful lot of important intercon- yeah. interconnectivity that we're in danger of losing. Um, but I do think like change is the like the understanding people's capacity for change, I think, is the really important yes. aspect of that. I think that there's a danger of feeling that people come sort of preset with certain ideologies and that that's just what they are. It's fundamental to what they what or who they are and that and that we are in opposition to that if we mm-hmm. don't agree with it. I think that's when you when I would look at my parents, you know, who are, you know, in their sort of like late seventies, early eighties now. Yeah. And the amount that their perspectives have changed over over the years, it would give you a real sense of how important it is to believe in people's capacity to change, you know, and and to and not to, I suppose, to straw man people and to push them into corners and, you know, Mm -hmm. deal with them oppositionally. I think that's a there's that's I do have a huge respect for that generation from the point of view that. I, I would think that 20 years ago, some of the conversations that if, if I was having conversations that I was having with my, my mother now, mm. it would, they would be much more difficult. Um, and I think her her capacity to have, you know, taken on all these different worldviews and to sort of, you know, to change. I think it's a really uh, I think it's a really impressive thing. And, yeah. you know, and, and I hope that, you know will have the same capacity to do that you know the same openness yeah i my dad said something to me recently in a conversation and i'm going to paraphrase so sorry dad not that he listens to the podcast but um he said we were having a chat about certain things and he was like yeah but we can't have gotten everything wrong in our life he's like there's definitely some things that we did right you know what if yous are wrong now yeah and i was like oh 
yeah, okay. We 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 could be like in 10 years going, actually they had it right. And I do see that in my parents and in my nana, who I'm like, actually a lot of what you were doing was kind and just surviving and you know living a good life and i'm like actually there we have to get you know maybe we're going too far sometimes and we have to pull back and go no you know their life and their morals and their values some of them we need to learn from as well yeah i think particularly i I suppose there's like a kindness or a generosity towards other people you know that you know, I I definitely can see it that there's it's sometimes too easy to think I'm opposed to this person and therefore they're of no value and you know yeah. and it, it's it is really dangerous you know it's a it's it's a much more black and white form of thinking than yeah you know th- than I think we realize and like my nana has she's the one during let's say the marriage referendum and the repeal reference she was the one asking the most questions mm. and really trying to figure it out. And everyone was like, everyone just presumed she would go the more conservative way. And she was like, but no, but what about that? And like, she's and she's now 86. Had her birthday last week. She thought she was 85. She was 86. Right. And she was like, she's the one asking the questions because I'm like, she's had 80 years of asking questions yeah. and changing so much. And we don't take that into account. We're like, older, they must be thinking this way. Mm. And that's just so untrue. Yeah, well... Going back to elsewhere, I think that was one of the really interesting things for me as well was, you know, I think we have this inbuilt sense that as you go back every decade in Ireland, the country becomes more conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not the case at all, of course, you know. And so it was fascinating for me to see that in 1919, you know, there was a workers strike where they were taking on extremely forward thinking, radical left wing ideas in a way yeah. that was very natural, you know, to set up a commune, to take over the ownership of the building. But then within that, you know, to demand pay equity for male and female workers, you know, which is something that, again, you know... Hey, you see that text in elsewhere and you're like, what? Yeah, like, it's, a, it's a, you know, a, a, and and also that they were forward thinking enough to, to say this is not a meaningful strike unless the patients are a part of it and to then integrate them into it. And I suppose, you know, to give give people who are in institutions a sense of worth and a sense Uh of responsibility you know like all of those i think are they're things that we haven't managed to manifest really in 2022 you know and and obviously at the time it's a totally ideological thing but it, it was a real learning curve for me to see that that was taking place in the place that i was from 100 years ago and that you know i i suppose you know that it the world doesn't work in that kind of evolution of ideas idea you know that Mm -hmm. we're all sort of kind of gradually there's sort of a myth of progress you know that everything is kind of becoming more liberal and more progressive obviously you know the last couple of years have completely debunked that because of you know political movements in the uk and in the states and um but i think it's a really good thing to remember for ireland you know that we there there was a huge amount of forward thinking thought in Ireland and has been, you know, for centuries, you know, and it's been repressed in different ways by different institutions and always finds little like means of having little sparks, you yeah. know, but that's in us as well, you know, and that's in everybody in, in our country, you know, mm. and I think having the belief in people's capacity, you know, to take on new ideas is really important because otherwise you just end up with the same sort of conservative governments and you yeah. you know and 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 you know both things are there there's also there's also that thing of feeling like well it's a risk to elect a new government or it's a risk to you know change things too much and those things are obviously in, in balance but we're not just one of those things we're both and yeah. it's important to keep that in mind yeah absolutely let's move on to your third prompt um and it's your brother anthony and his passing and how that affected how you is it fair to say approached life and music i think so it's funny you know i suppose i i put it down as one of my prompts because i felt that i couldn't not in a way because yeah I, it definitely you know losing anthony with you know which is you know, coming up on 20 years ago, um, you know, was certainly like the most seismic thing that happened in, in my life. Um, I was 15 at the time. Anthony was my eldest brother mm-hmm. um, and he passed away from cancer, skin cancer. Um, and I suppose at the time, w- what happened, it was obviously an extremely difficult time. Um, I think it 
it corresponded with the time when I found that music and creating music was a means of communicating things that I couldn't really articulate in speech. Um, right. And so, and, and I suppose as well, you know, when you ask about the the follow through or the graft or the sense of, you know, the sense of why... This, I, I suppose why I you know the, I would feel that the work is important but also that it's something that I kind of have to do I remember really feeling like Anthony was 32 when he died and having this sense of it being so important to do what you want to do like not not in an indulgent way but in a sort of you know in terms of realising a vocation that you, to, to kind of not put things off but yeah. to actually kind of you know really do the work in the now and I think that you know I, I know haven't had conversations with Anthony there were things that he wanted to do in his life that he felt he would do at a certain point after he mm-hmm. had earned a certain amount or um, he had a really good job he was he worked as an investment banker in London um, but was a really good writer as well and was quite interested in journalism and kind of had projected that at a certain point he might move back to Ireland and he'd do that and, okay. and I, I was really rocked by I was really rocked by the idea of plans that didn't come to fruition, you know, because of, you know, the unexpected yeah. nature of life and death, you know, coming into the equation. And I think that lit a fire in me and gave me a real sense of, you know, the thing that I, you know, the, the sort of feeling that I have of wanting to make things is something that I'm going to follow and and I'm going to allow it to sort of guide my life rather than feeling that I sort of have to achieve certain things in my life before doing that and I haven't always been able to hold on to that of I mean, course there yeah. been periods definitely where you know like I would feel for me when you say but the 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 H dip I mean for me it was kind of academia and doing a PhD and I suppose you know there, there being a sense of having to keep that path going at the same time as the creative path yeah but I think that definitely the the feeling that I would have had of Anthony having uh, other potential or other potentiality in his life that kind of wasn't realised because of an idea of stability it sort of that rocked me, um and really gave me the sense of yeah that the vocation is the important thing to follow and you know and if I work hard enough I'll be able to make a life around that yeah um I feel very connected with him as well you know at, at but I mean, I'm just thinking like isn't that an amazing gift he left you. Yeah, and it's funny, he would have, he like, he was really, he was my, my hero from, he was my eldest brother, yeah. we were 16 years apart, um, but, you know, he was kind of, like, a mythical figure for me as a child, because, also because he lived abroad, so he kind of would come okay. back, and he yeah. kind of, he was really tall, and he had, he had this, he used to wear this lovely brown leather jacket, and there was a smell off it, and I used to, you know, and he used to kind of lift me up, and I'd have a real sense of, you know, the, his... I suppose there's power out there in the world, like, you know, and there yeah. was, you know, like there was, but, um, sounds like quite, um, even that image of like him lifting, like quite a protector. Yeah. But the last conversations that I had with him, um, we lived in London. I went for a walk with him. I remember in, in Richmond park and I talked about some of the things, you know, I, I had just started writing songs at the time and, okay, and I was very interested in, in art and creativity and in philosophy and in writing and in all of these things that I suppose, you know, that that felt that they were maybe that they didn't have a very clear career path. Yeah. And and there and he was very encouraging about it. And I don't know whether at the time he knew that he was dying, but but there was a huge sense of being imparted with this self belief and you know wow. and a sense of you know the importance of following my heart with it and you know and i suppose he would have said to me you know you if you're gifted in it it will find you know you'll be able to find opportunities in the world and he would have even talked about like people in his line of work who didn't study business or who didn't study whatever but who ended up in those jobs just because of their talent and uh, and i kind of stored that away i think as a little secrets sort of you know uh, to myself that you know that that there was this secret potential that I knew that I had you know because of the way that that had been said to me and I think a lot of the times it's funny you know when we made elsewhere I've had a lot of discussions with my mum about 
you know, feeling his presence very strongly. And I would know that from her point of view, she, she feels his presence very strongly in me. Um, oh, wow. Okay. And, and I think that, and I think in part there's that, I, I have a feeling of manifesting something that's, you know, it's not for him, but it's sort of with him in a way. Um, and I do, I, I have a, well, he was kind of part of the journey because he gave you those gifts. Yeah. To see it through. And I'm sure many other kind of things he's left you with. Yeah, certainly. And I don't know whether, you know, you would find something similar, say, with, you know, your your granddad. Like, I I would feel that, you know, obviously losing Anthony was devastating. But he, but it created a very rich internal life because I, because the relationship didn't stop, you know. Yeah, of so, course. And... And so my sense of there being an otherness there, you know, radically increased because, you know, I just lost somebody that I had, you know, been very close with and had spoken with an awful lot. And the conversation continued and I had to obviously find a, a different sort of belief in myself or a, a different energy in myself to sort of feel that the conversation was something that came back to me as well. You have to observe things really differently mm-hmm. um but kind of over the course of my life since i have found that probably losing anthony was the doorway into that invisible world from which a lot of the work comes as well you know yeah. that, that there's a you know that it created a stronger connection with an invisible you know like i love i love that i was reading Moncon mcgann's book recently and he, you know he talks about you know that uh, that in Irish you've got canter but then alter which is like you know so canter being I suppose what's around you kind of in terms of like your neighborhood or the you know your surrounds and then alter which is the opposite to that but not in terms of distance it's sort of the things that are around you but that are invisible or that are intangible uh-huh. um, and I would feel in a way that what Anthony did was you know gave me a doorway into that alter space you know that wow. I I I definitely, I definitely feel that you know there was a gift in the grief. Um, yeah. And so yeah, it was like a, it, it does it does feel in a way that I'm never I think going to be able to exactly put my finger on. Yeah. I think that, you know, um, that relationship is something that's very important to me and my work and my life. It's funny. I'm I'm reading a book at the moment while I'm listening to a book, um, called The Gift. Mm. And at the start, she kind of discusses she was an house which, um, she was captured and she survived but her parents didn't and she watched them die and there's a lot of talk about grief at the start that's not what the book's about but she's like you have to think about your perception on grief Mm. and she's like I had 16 years with my parents and then I carried a lot of what they thought me through and a lot of what they thought me helped me survive through that period and then she's like a doctor now in psychotherapy and all and helps people but has done has these books and it really made me sit and be like think about death in a completely different way so then I was interested when you put that um in your prompts because then I was thinking how you were going to approach speaking about it Mm. because it's so easy as she this writer also said in the book so we like you grieve it's you know she's like I'll never get over yeah you know my parents dying and watching the smoke you know go up and the guard being like that's your parents like and she's like, I'll never get over that. But what do I do? Like, mm. fall into a dark hole? Or do I kind of get up and go on and see their death as a gift? And even saying that, I don't fully understand that. But mm. it was amazing f- to hear someone who's been through something so traumatic think about it Absolutely. Like and it's the paradox of it. Like, because at the same time, you know, also I suppose you can never allow yourself fall into considering other people's lives as metaphors or as you know um, you know that like uh, Anthony dying so young was also a tragedy you know and and I suppose in a way that was you know in terms of I talked at the beginning about you know a period of poor mental health for me Uh where I kind of you know like you know I suffered quite badly from depression for a period and it was funnily around about the age that he died you know, um, when I was kind of approaching 30, 31, 32. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what I struggled with was the opposite narrative where we had very quickly talked about how full a life he had led and, you know, and I suppose, you know, talked about all of the, the, the beautiful aspects of him and his life and of losing him and maybe not given enough t- space to the tragedy of, 
you know, yeah. somebody's life being taken away at that stage. And I think what I found was that when I was coming to that age, I didn't feel any of the sense of fully having manifested my life or, you know, I didn't I didn't yeah. feel like I had any a lot of the stuff that we said that he had when he was that age, you know, and uh, and started wondering what I was doing with my life. And then, you know, then of course, realized, no, it wasn't. He didn't reach a point of completion at 32. I mean, there is also an abrupt end to something to somebody that had lots of plans and he had just had a daughter. Had a whole you know. life ahead of him. Oh, absolutely. Like. So it's it the it's the paradox of holding that alongside the other sort of, you know, I suppose the the beautiful aspect of grief, you know, where it it does change your own relationship with living, mm-hmm. um, and the world around you sort of takes on a different quality, and sometimes. Sometimes it's difficult to get beyond the darker shades of that, and you yeah. know, and then sometimes there are these really beautiful experiences that I think only that are only accessible to you because you've gone through that grief. Yeah. Um, and I I do definitely think that there's there's something in in me in the way that I make work that I think comes from that period, um, and a sense of what's important, and you know, I suppose a sense of also cherishing the people that you're working with. Mm-hmm. You, know, so, you know, there's there's a there's an ethics that I think grows from the experience of grief. Yeah, you know, and it's a it's it's a hard thing for that to be always to be linked. Like it, what you would love would be to feel that feeling of connection all the time. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think that it's always possible because, you know. No, and to feel it, you have to have the other side. It's always, as you say, the two sides of things or the three or four or five sides. Like like grief is so nuanced. and Exactly. Yeah. You know, you can't constantly feel connected. You have to, you need a break, Michael. No, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, well, if it's okay with you, um, I'd love to dedicate this episode to Anthony. Thank you. Um, with it coming up to 20 years. Um, and it's always nice to like find moments to remember people and have like a staple of, you know, you're nearly 35. I am 35. You are 35. Yeah. So at 35, it's kind of like a little reminder for him. Yeah. Uh, Michael, thank you so much. Virgo, it's been I've been waiting pleasure. two years yeah. to do this <laughs> and we finally did it. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. And I'm excited to see what's going to come for you in the next few years. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs>